There is a void in every person's life that can only be filled by a relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor John Randall. Render to God what belongs to Him. Have you done that? Friend, you were created to know God. You were created to have a relationship with God. That is why there is a void in your life that can't be filled with any of your pursuits. It can only be filled with Him. You were created in His image. You were created to know Him. Render unto God what belongs to Him. You are not your own. You were bought with the price, the Bible says. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body and in your life, which is His. Are you doing that? Have you rendered what belongs to God? Welcome once again to A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. For quite some time now, we've been considering the words of Luke in his gospel account and deriving wonderful insights to apply to our daily walk. Pastor John will point to chapter 20 today. Right on the heels of being questioned by the religious authorities, Jesus now gives a very helpful parable with many lessons for us today. The first of which is he's long-suffering. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7 reads this way, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. God was the one that had planted Israel. God had chosen Israel. Matthew's gospel in a parallel passage says that he he built a tower. He dug a hedge. He provided all of these things for the vineyard to bear good fruit. If the vineyard is the nation of Israel, who then is the vineyard owner? The owner of the vineyard is none other than God himself. He is the owner of the vineyard within the parable. Then the question becomes, well then, who are the servants that were sent by the vineyard owner to reap a harvest from those he had leased the vineyard to? Well, those were the prophets. These were the ones that God had sent throughout the history of the nation of Israel when they rebelled to return and to respond and repent. You think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor, the major prophets, all of those who had a word from God sent to the people. And what did they do when the prophets came? Having just read through the book of Jeremiah recently, I know what happened to Jeremiah. He was put in prison. He was shunned. He was hated. He was thrown into a pit. Why? Because he told them the truth. And so he was despised because of it. And all of these servants had been sent over and over throughout the history of the nation of Israel to this vineyard, and they were rejected. Well, who then is the beloved son that is found within this passage? It's none other than Jesus. The father, having sent all of the prophets, determined to send his beloved son to come to the people, saying, surely they will respect him. But when he came, what did they do? Well, at the end of this week, on Good Friday, they would take him outside of the city, just like he was outside of the vineyard, and they would crucify him and put him to death. And Jesus then said, what will happen to those who have been given the vineyard? It will be taken from them. They will be judged and the vineyard will be given to someone else. And when the Pharisees heard that, when the religious leaders heard the the end of the story, they cried out, certainly not. It'll never happen. Nice story. It's not true. They knew that he was speaking about them. What else does this parable reveal to us? I think there are a few lessons that you could take away from it. First of all, the long-suffering and patience of God. God is long-suffering. Notice how many times the landowner sent repeatedly servants to reach the people, and yet they rejected them. A normal landowner would not tolerate such insolence. He would immediately put down any kind of rebellion. But here you have this landowner sending servant after servant after servant. It speaks of the long-suffering of God. The Bible says that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Some people don't understand that. They think that the long-suffering of God is actually his acceptance of their lifestyle or their behavior, when really God is just being gracious, and he's seeking to get your attention. For some of you here this morning, God may have been sending person after person into your life. Some, you think you're a Christian magnet. Why is it all of a sudden that all these people around me, and they keep talking about Jesus? Like the woman I met here last night who had people coming into her life, and she decided to give her life to Christ. And maybe that's you. God's been speaking to you and bringing people, and you've been rejecting and thinking, this is just coincidence, and why does everybody keep telling me this? And, and God's seeking to get your attention because he's long-suffering, friend. Please respond to the long-suffering and kindness of God and repent and receive salvation. Not only do we see the long-suffering of God, but also make note of the folly of man, how continually they reject the messengers that were sent to them because they harden their hearts. You know, it's possible to harden your heart to the truth of the gospel, and you can harden your heart to a point where your heart becomes hard. It becomes solidified. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. You harden your heart. Is your heart soft toward God, or have you hardened your heart? Do you have answers to the questions that you ask everybody else? Do you have answers for eternal life? Do you know where you're going to go? Where do you get those answers? What is the reason for your existence? Why are you here? If you cannot answer that question, you need to be able to answer that question because life will come to an end and only Christ has those answers. I challenge you to allow your heart to be softened by the truth of the gospel. I also find here in this parable the love of God Think of how many times the Lord so loved this vineyard, so loved the world, that he sent his only beloved son in order to save it. And finally, this parable reveals that there is a coming judgment that will take place. There is coming a day when God will judge a Christ-rejecting world. And Jesus said to these men here, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Again, quoting from Psalm 118. The chief cornerstone was to be Jesus. The builders were the religious leaders. They rejected the chief cornerstone, but that wouldn't change the fact that he would still be the cornerstone of the nation. Even though he was a rock of offense, a stumbling block to the religious leaders, Jesus would become the chief cornerstone. The religious leaders... Hearing the response of Jesus, Jesus said, notice this, verse 18, whoever falls on that stone, speaking of himself, will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Listen carefully. I can tell you from experience, it is much better to fall upon the rock and be broken, to be humbled, than to have the rock fall upon you and grind you to powder. Friend, I encourage you, humble yourself. Humble yourself, fall upon the Lord, on the rock which is Christ, and be broken, and he will make you whole. Or else the rock will fall upon you and grind you to powder. There is an easy way, and there is a difficult way. There's a hard way. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof, the Bible says, is destruction. Which way are you on? I pray that you would fall upon the rock and be broken, 
Well, the religious leaders, they present a question about authority, and they were silenced. Jesus presented a parable that unmasked their intentions. Again, they were silent. You would think that maybe this would be the end of the questioning, but it doesn't cease. For we come now to verse 20, and there is a question raised concerning obedience to civil authority. It says here, so they watched him, verse 20, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you don't show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they kept silent. Second question, and it was a loaded question. They come with flattery, probably trying to disarm Jesus. They say, oh, we, we, you can hear the subtlety and the sarcasm. Oh, we know you're a great teacher. You're an awesome teacher. You teach the way of God and truth. You know, we just have one question. <laughs> we want to ask you, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The tax that they referred to was known as the tributary tax and the Pharisees and the Jews as a nation saw this as completely humiliating to have to pay this tax. Most Jews found it to be a burden because the tax that they were paying would pay for Roman occupation in their city. They were paying to have their enemies govern them. And that was extremely humiliating. In addition to that, the coin which they would use, the denarius, included not only the image of Caesar upon it, but the inscription that said Caesar was the son of God and the high priest of the nation. And the Jews felt that that was total and complete blasphemy. So imagine having to carry this coin to pay to have these people here. It went against everything that you believed in. And so this was a difficult question. For if Jesus responded and said, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, they could run to the governor and they could say, this man is seeking to incite the nation against Rome. He's dangerous. He needs to be put in prison or put to death for his insurrection. But if Jesus said, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then all of the people would turn against him. They would be disillusioned by his response and they would leave him. That was their hope. So how does Jesus respond? Notice, first of all, he asked for a coin. He didn't have one himself. Interesting. And someone gave him a coin and he asked a simple question, whose picture is on this coin? The obvious answer, it's Caesar's. Jesus said, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. Jesus's response was so wise. In fact, someone said concerning it that Jesus distinguished without dividing the secular and sacred. He united without unifying the two spheres in which his disciples must live. 
Jesus' response, there was nothing in it that could be incriminating, yet at the same time, he answered the question and had, in addition, reminded them of their obligation to God. You give to Caesar what, what has his impression on it, and you give to God yourself what belongs to him. You have the inscription, as it were, created in the image of God, rendered to God what belongs to God. A man by the name of Tertullian in the third century commented on this, and he said, quote, give to Caesar his image stamped upon his coin and give to God his own image stamped upon you. I like that. Render to God what belongs to him. Have you done that? Friend, you were created to know God. You were created to have a relationship with God. That is why there is a void in your life that can't be filled with any of your pursuits. It can only be filled with him. You were created in his image. You were created to know him. Render unto God what belongs to him. You are not your own. You were bought with the price, the Bible says. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body and in your life, which is his. Are you doing that? Have you rendered what belongs to God? You would assume, again, that having been shut down a second time, perhaps we should not question him any further. However, the Sadducees decided to throw their phylacteries into the ring, and they came with what they felt was an open and shut case in theology. They said, teacher, verse 28, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, here's the situation. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. The third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Now think about this. The Sadducees, understand this. The Sadducees, you read about them in the Gospels. They were the counterpart to the Pharisees. They were also part of the governing body of Israel known as the Sanhedrin. And they were the aristocracy amongst the religious leaders. And they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural apart from God himself. And they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they bring Jesus this worn out theological argument based upon Deuteronomy chapter 25, where the Lord said, if a brother dies and he has no offspring, it's the obligation of the other brother to raise up a name in his dead brother's place. Here it says there were seven brothers, and they all died. What was this woman cooking? The Bible doesn't tell us, but they all died. And then she died at the end. But as they asked this question, thinking that they had ensnared Jesus. Oh, Jesus, there's going to be a lot of problems in the resurrection if there is a resurrection, because really, who's she going to be married to if there were seven brothers for one bride instead of seven brides for seven brothers? This is a problem. <laughs> what shall we do? Matthew's gospel, in a parallel passage, Jesus responds. In Matthew 22, Jesus said to these men, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Jesus said, you don't even understand the scriptures that you 
believe. And then Jesus gives us insight, first of all, into eternity, and secondly, into the resurrection. Notice what he says about eternity. Jesus answered in verse 34 and said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. That is those that live in this life. We marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, that is speaking of eternal life, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus gives us some insight into what eternity's about. And for one thing, he tells us we're not going to die. We're going to be sons and daughters of the resurrection. But he also tells us that in heaven, we are not given in marriage. Now, for some of you, this may be a great discouragement. You think, we're not going to have our own mansion together? Who's going to cook for me? You know, what are we going to do in heaven up there? If I'm, my wife and I are not uh, up there, you're going to be up there together. But listen, you're not going to be married. For some of you, that may, may not be something that saddens you. And <laughs> man, I'm just longing for heaven. And you need to repent and go to the marriage retreat. But I, I want to, <laughs> but let me just say this. This isn't heaven. Earth isn't heaven. If you could take the most enjoyable experience you could imagine in this earth, the best relationship you've ever had this side of heaven, and, and that which brings you the most joy in this life, you could take all of those things and roll them up into one and try to compare it to heaven, it would not compare. And it's hard for us to understand that. Because eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. It hasn't entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. We can't fully comprehend it. It's hard to think that there could be a place where there's no need of the sun because the glory of God shines so brightly. It's hard to imagine a world without tears and sorrow and pain and, and the former things of this life being passed away. We can't even fathom that because of where we live at the present time. But we can trust Jesus that it's so much more glorious what awaits us there in heaven, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus. But I want you to also see here from this passage that Jesus proves the resurrection from one of the first five books that the Sadducees believed in. Notice what it says in verse 37. But even Moses showed, referring to Exodus, in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, again, keep in mind, the Sadducees believed in the first five books of the Bible, but they did not believe in the resurrection. So Jesus goes to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, referring to the time when Moses was called up onto the mountain and the Lord revealed himself in the burning bush and notice that Moses refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses came 500 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he speaks of the Lord, he doesn't say that he was the God of Abraham. May he rest in peace. He doesn't say he was the God of Isaac until he passed away. He was the God of Jacob until he died. No, he speaks in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what, therefore, does that prove? It proves that they are not dead, but they are alive. 
In other words, there is a resurrection. The Pharisees, of course, were dumbfounded. They did not know how to answer. In fact, they kept silent after this, and that was a good idea. But Jesus tells them that there will be a resurrection. The Bible tells us that there will be a resurrection for both the dead and even the living. There's a resurrection coming. Jesus, in John's gospel, the fifth chapter, he said this. He said, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. Listen, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Every single person will have a resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You will have a resurrection. There is life beyond the grave. But where your resurrection leads you is determined by what you do with the message of the gospel at the present time. There is a resurrection as Jesus said, into eternal life, into heaven, into glory. Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. A resurrection to eternal life. But the Bible also tells us, for those that have rejected the message of the gospel, there is a resurrection to eternal death, to condemnation. But Jesus died so that you would never have to go to hell. He paid the price so that you could have the hope of eternal life in heaven. You will have a resurrection, friend. If I was to ask you the question today, well, what do you think is going to happen when you die? If your response is, well, I just think that's the end, not according to the Bible, not according to Jesus who conquered death. He is the authority on death and the resurrection. What will you say? You will have to to contend with the words of Jesus. You will have to give an account for what you know. You know the gospel. You've heard the truth. What are you going to do with it today? Offering hope and encouragement for your daily walk, that is Pastor John Randall. And this is A Daily Walk. We're going through the Bible right now. You can order a CD copy of this message by calling 877-242-0828. You can also listen to our recent programs on our website at adailywalk.org. We also offer John's teachings by podcast, and we have an app, too. To get our app, do a search for Calvary South OC. I should also mention John is on Twitter and Instagram. You can start following him on Twitter at PJRandall7 and on Instagram at John P. Randall. With all that's been going on in the Middle East and Israel, many are inquiring about end times Bible prophecy. And we want to get a good book into your hands on this subject from our friend Barry Stagner. It's The Time of the Signs, a chronology of Earth's final events. When the disciples asked Jesus how to anticipate his return, he gave them an incredible answer that we stand to benefit from. They asked him about the signs of his coming and the end times. What should they expect to take place? In The Time of the Signs, Barry Stagner explores the events that will precede Jesus' return. We'll send it to you for the special price of $12. Call us at 
242-0828 or go online to adailywalk.org. Thank you for your prayerful and financial support of A Daily Walk. It really is having an impact. With your help, we're able to reach thousands with the truth and love of Christ at a time they really need to hear it. If you'd like to donate to the ministry, please go to adailywalk.org or call us at 877-242-0828. And you know, we are very grateful to the Lord when we hear back from our listeners. Write to Pastor John today by email at adailywalk at gmail.com. He loves to read listener letters and emails. Let him know what's going on in your life and how we can pray for you at adailywalk at gmail.com. Maybe you're one of our new listeners. Let us know what you think of A Daily Walk when you write to us at adailywalk at gmail.com. And now here to finish up Luke 20 is Pastor John. As we conclude, let me mention this as well. It was the Passover celebration. When a person would come to Jerusalem to the Passover, they would bring a lamb. And as they brought the lamb, it would have to be inspected by the religious leaders. They would inspect it. They would look for some flaw. They would look for some blemish. They would look for something that would disqualify it from being offered. Once the lamb had undergone the examination, the lamb could then be offered and their sins could be atoned for. Here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, coming on the Passover to offer himself up. And what is happening here? He's being examined. The religious leaders examine him over and over again. And what do they find? Nothing. They find no fault in him. He was without sin. He was without blemish, without fault. Therefore, he could be the acceptable sacrifice for our sins, our atonement, our redemption found in Christ. The lamb in cross-examination passed the test and died in your place. What are the signs of the last days? We'll talk about it tomorrow on A Daily Walk when our study in Luke resumes. A Daily Walk is a presentation of Calvary South O.C.